You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Henry II was the king of England in the 12th century. I'm a bit of a history geek it's my secret private shame when i'm home alone in the middle of the night and i want to read something i don't go online and read your tumblr porn blogs i don't uh, read scientific studies about human sexuality or relationships i read about royal families and european history and my favorite period of the stewards the uh, english revolution the beheading of charles the first the interregnum the restoration charles the second it's all fascinating stuff but anyway, that's my secret middle-of-the-night reading. Not sex stuff, not science stuff, but history stuff. Thomas Beckett, Henry II, King of England. There was this priest, the Archbishop of Canterbury, named Thomas Beckett, who really annoyed the fuck out of him. Wouldn't cede some of his authority to the king, maintain these ecclesiastical courts where basically shitty priests could commit a crime and then get tried in ecclesiastical court and get off. Does that sound familiar? Should sound pretty fucking familiar. This isn't new with the Catholic Church. Protecting shitty priests who did shitty things goes way back, all the way back in the case of Thomas Beckett to the 12th century. Anyway, Henry II wasn't a big fan of Thomas Beckett, even though they had been friends when they were coming up. They grew up together. They were friends, and they had this huge falling out. And Henry II famously... In a rage, just angry, pounding the podium, if indeed they had podiums in the 12th century to pound, but figuratively pounding the podium, said, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? And four knights went to Canterbury Cathedral, pulled out their swords, and hacked Thomas Becket to pieces and rid Henry II of this troublesome priest. And this whole last week, as I have been listening to Donald Trump speaking at hate rallies, at Trump rallies, pardon me, about Gonzalo Curiel, the judge who is presiding over the civil case against Donald Trump and Trump University, this fucking scam. And he's calling this guy who was born in Indiana a Mexican who shouldn't be able to sit in judgment over Donald Trump because he obviously has this bias because Trump's going to build a wall. And he's calling him a hater and calling him a hater. And I just sit there thinking, listening to the news reports, that what we're seeing is – the who will rid me of this troublesome priesting, potentially, of this judge. So I hope they've upped his security detail because the game Donald Trump is playing, whether he knows it or not, is a dangerous one. And I'm flabbergasted. I'm heartened on one hand by the sort of media and political system, immune system response to this. There has been pushback. Everyone's flabbergasted, even some of the people who had been only too recently cupping Donald Trump's balls, like Megyn Kelly, are calling him out on this. And Paul Ryan, the day he endorsed Donald Trump, coincidentally with the day Donald Trump began to attack this judge, born in Indiana, began, in my opinion, potentially, who will rid me of this troublesome priesting, this judge, born in Indiana. Paul Ryan endorsed Donald Trump that day. Later that day, Donald Trump went off on this judge. And later, later that day, Paul Ryan said he had a problem with that. Not a big enough problem to withdraw his endorsement, of course, but a problem with that. So there's been some pushback in the media and, and, and in politics, and that's helping. 
Well, that's some indication that we're going to have a slightly brighter political future, that our institutions and the elites, these prominent people, still have a capacity to see hate for what hate is, to see the threat that Donald Trump and his rhetoric represents to our system of government, to the separation of powers, to the independent judiciary, and push back hard against it? Maybe Megyn Kelly and the handful of Republicans, or not some small handful, including Newt Gingrich, who only too recently was seen with his tongue up Donald Trump's ass, has come out and criticized what Donald Trump has been saying about this judge. Maybe it's an indication that the better angels of their natures are actually still sitting on their shoulders and have been able to mumble something softly through the ball gags that Republicans stuff in their mouths. And it's been picked up. Or maybe just the GOP is seeing the writing on the wall demographically and realizing that the longer Donald Trump goes on like this, the longer it's going to be before there is a Republican in the White House, if there ever is a Republican in the White House ever again. Demographically, this country is changing. Hispanics, Latinos, the largest minority group in this country and growing. I think the largest single ethnicity in California Republicans are going, yeah, this isn't helping. This isn't helping our long-term prospects that we are doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down, that we are sinking to the bottom of the ocean, lashed to this out-of-control, dangerous bigot, might not be in our best interests over the long term because Donald Trump is going to lose this election and it's going to be over for him. But his legacy, the people who stood beside him, won't be over for them for a very long time. They have elections to lose in the future, and they are going to lose them. Donald Trump not helping the Republican Party. You know who else isn't helping right now? Anti-Trump protesters going to Trump rallies and beating the shit out of people in the streets outside of those Trump rallies. I don't know if you saw the videos and the clips on Twitter. There's a rundown of them at the Washington Post. Google Trump rally Washington Post San Jose, and you will see... Trump supporters getting cold cocked, getting punched in the face by someone they didn't see coming. You will see Trump supporters having things thrown in their face. You will see Trump supporters walking down the street after having been assaulted, bleeding all over themselves and down their shirts. This, if you are against Donald Trump, if you do not want to see this man in office, this is absolutely positively the wrong thing to be doing. You are being played. Donald Trump is not in a million years going to win in California. No Republican is going to win an election in California for a national office in a million years at this rate. Why is Donald Trump holding rallies in San Jose and Anaheim and San Diego, cities with very large Hispanic communities, cities with large progressive communities, cities full of people who are pissed off about Donald Trump to get video just like this, to get the video that some out-of-control anti-Trumpers are handing him, playing into his hands because then he can be the law and order guy. Then they can be the real victims. Don't be suckered. If you're going to a Trump rally, no assaulting people, please. Unless you're trying to help Donald Trump get his fucking ass elected. I just said he's not going to win the White House and I'm confident that he will not. That ultimately we will keep this motherfucker out of the White House because what elevated Donald Trump to the position he's in now is the GOP base, which is sick and has been sick for a very long time with 
hatred and fear shot through with it like a cancer. But the GOP base is not the American people and the American people are not going to put that orange shit bag in the White House. But you make it harder to keep that orange shit bag out of the White House. You're making the hill we all have to climb a little steeper when you show up at Trump rallies and assault men and women, surround them and assault them in front of TV cameras, in front of cell phone video cameras, which are ubiquitous and everywhere. You cannot assault people, period. You should not assault people, period. And I agree with Josh Marshall writing at Talking Points Memo who says this is all on video. We know who these people are. We can find the people who committed these assaults and arrest them. And I agree we should. The authorities should. A, because it's wrong to assault people. B, because this has got to stop or we're going to put Henry II in the White House. And we don't want Henry II in the White House. Go read about Henry II. You don't want that motherfucker in the White House. We don't want this motherfucker, Donald Trump, demagogue in the White House. So it's Tuesday, recording this before the results come in from New Jersey and California on the Democratic side. Very likely Hillary Clinton is now the nominee. And we are all going to unite behind Hillary now, support Hillary now, and keep Donald Trump out of the White House now and forever. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight female, and I have a question about unreasonable friend requests. I went through a really traumatic breakup about two years ago. The guy and I dated for two years. He was my first almost everything, and our relationship was really good, but the breakup and its after effects were complicated and messy. We both did things wrong, but the bottom line is he was super manipulative and kind of left me for someone else. Like, we were broken up, but we were having sex and saying I love you that morning and talking about getting back together, and she was his girlfriend that evening. Plus, he kept me on the hook for a year after that happened, and there's a lot I'm sure his now fiancé doesn't know. Um, I don't know if the severity of my feelings were even justified, but it took me a long, long time to not feel like garbage every day after what happened, especially since he was still talking to me all the time, and it took me a year to cut him off. Since then, though, I've done all the right things. I have a good social life. I go to the gym. I've dated a lot, but I haven't found anyone serious. And for the most part, now I'm happy and over it. But I met my extra mutual friends who are getting married next week, and we're both in the wedding party. And I have been really, really anxious about having to spend time around him because I'm afraid it's going to throw me back into the misery zone when climbing out of that place was really fucking hard. I resigned myself to spending one day with him and his fiance, but the problem is the groom really wants my ex's fiance to be invited to all the wedding festivities that my ex isn't part of, like the bridal shower and the bachelorette party. The bride is my oldest friend, and she knows what I went through with the ex, but her soon-to-be husband doesn't understand why she's not inviting the ex's fiance to these things. We managed to get through the bridal shower without her there, but the bachelorette party, which I organized and I'm throwing, is coming up, and the groom really wants the fiance to be invited. My friend asked me if that's okay, and I said no, that if she needs to invite the fiancé to keep the peace with the groom, I understand, but I will not be at the party, the party that I organized. My question is, do I have a right to declare ultimatums like that? I don't want to be a brat, but I feel like this is a reasonable demand in the face of an emotionally difficult situation for me. My ex and his fiancé have already taken precedence at that friend's other parties, and I haven't said anything. Am I standing up for myself or just being a difficult bitch? All right. First, being a bitch and standing up for yourself, not mutually exclusive phenomena. Sometimes to stand up for yourself, you got to be a bitch. And of course, whether you regard it as a bitch is subjective. Sometimes we stand up for ourselves and we are perceived as bitches when we are just 
standing up for ourselves. But sometimes to stand up for yourself, you got to kind of bring the bitch. All that said, I'm a little confused by your problem. I felt like I needed a, a flow chart, a wedding seat chart to follow this. You and your ex were introduced by mutual friends. Those mutual friends are now getting married. Your ex who played you and it took you a long time to get over has a new fiance who's included or should be included or wants to be included or the mutual friends wish to see included in the wedding festivities and you can't be in a room with her. God damn her. You can't stand the sight of her. Not because of anything she did, but because of everything your ex did. Seems to me that you are projecting your anger at your ex onto his new girlfriend where it may not be appropriately applied that that she was on deck while you were still on deck while you were still fucking your ex and he was lying to you and playing you and telling you what you wished to hear isn't her doing or her fault i almost feel like you could empathize with her a bit because she doesn't seem to realize what a shitty husband she's about to acquire if he indeed is 100% of the problem Seems to me that in a case like this, what you would want to do is suck it up and be the bigger person. You at a large bachelorette party, it is easy to pivot around and avoid someone you don't wish to interact with. Same thing at a bridal shower. It's not hard to make sure you are positioned on the other side of the room. It's not hard to deputize a couple of friends to run interference and make sure that someone's always at your elbow and ready to occupy your time, cut in, be there for you to turn to if your ex's fiance, who you are slightly irrationally angry at because you're truly angry at your ex and you're sort of projecting that onto her, if she should come into your line of sight or say something that there's someone for you to dance off with. Not hard to do. And I think it would win you praise. It would make you look like the more mature person in the room, like the better person. And indeed, if your ex is a holy shitty human being who did shitty things to you, don't you want to look like the better person? Doesn't mean it won't be hard. Doesn't mean it won't be difficult. It's a good skill to acquire as well, particularly over the course of your long and inevitably complicated life where you are going to wind up at weddings, at christenings, at first communions, if you're Catholic, at funerals, at bridal showers, at baby showers, funeral homes with people that you despise, that you happen to be related to or happen to have been related to at some point and being able to paste a smile on your face and deal and get through it, make a beeline for the bar across the street immediately after and knock one back. That's an important skill to acquire. And the earlier you acquire it in life, the more awful incidents and interactions it's going to carry you through. So why not seize the opportunity to acquire that skill now and let the bastard ex-boyfriend's fiance, who sounds blameless in all of this, you didn't list anything that she did wrong, except being with him while he was still playing you, which is, again, not her doing or her fault necessarily. Let her come. Freeze her out. Don't have to chat. Pain, smile, slap it on your face, get through it. Hey, Ben, just wondering, uh, you know, I'm in a relationship, been in about a relationship about a year now. Um, you know, things are pretty great, but I don't know, the sex has sort of waned over time. 
I feel like like her desire has waned even more than mine. I mean, my girlfriend already had a pretty low sex drive to begin with, but now it seems like we just never really hook up and we're almost like just basically friends with benefits without benefits. I, I guess just like friends, best friends at that, at that. I mean, it's great. I love hanging out with her and I love being with her, but I just feel like we don't have as much, you know, sex as I'd like. And, you know, my question to you is, is it fucked up to create like an online dating profile and, you know, potentially seek out someone else while you're in a relationship? I mean, I don't know. I have issues with, you know, being alone and stuff like that. And I kind of, I don't really want to be alone and it makes me nervous and stuff. And I'd like to have a backup plan if worse came to worse. So I'm just wondering what your opinion on, on that matter is. Like, I'm not saying going out and hooking up and like fucking other people and whatever while you're in a relationship. I already, I get that that's not kosher, but I just mean like maybe like exploring your options while you're still in a relationship, sort of like putting your feelers out. It seems to me that if you're best friends, if you're really that close, that you could be honest with her about what's really going on here. You've only been together a year. You're no longer having sex, that she doesn't seem to have much desire for you sexually. So obviously this is not a romantic relationship, not a sexual partnership. This is a really good and close friendship. And you could have that good and close friendship and not be alone, which you fear being, while you get out there and look around and see what else might be possible for you while you put those feelers out there. So you could be honest with her. Like, obviously, we're not destined to be in a long-term romantic sexual relationship because here we are a year in and then sex is over and we're really close. So maybe sex brought us together. Maybe there was an initial spark of desire. But now, obviously – the strong thing, what we really are, good friends. I'd like to start dating other people that I might have a more of a sexual connection with and not lose your friendship. You can say all that. Who knows how she'll react? There are people who enter into relationships, people with low sex drives, people who are asexual, not yet fully aware of their asexuality, who enter into relationships where they don't want to have sex with that other person. They stop wanting to have sex with that other person, but they don't want that person to have sex with anybody else or regard anybody else as a potential romantic partner because then they're going to lose that person. But they're going to lose that person anyway. And who knows? Maybe she'll feel that way. And if you try to be honest with her about what's actually going on, which she should be able to perceive, it'll be the end of the relationship and you will be alone. I think you should take the honest course and you should say, look, this is where we are. This is where we're at. Obviously, we are going to be friends, right? That said, and I'm going to contradict myself now, the world is full of technically partnered people who are taking a look around and seeing what's out there. A lot of people don't end the relationship that they're in, whether it's sexless or not, or relatively happy or not until something better appears on the horizon that sometimes people need that incentive, that incentive of an actual prospect, an actual date, an actual somebody who wants to fuck them to come along and there are relationships that deserve to be taken outside behind the barn and shot and put down. And if what you need to get to that point to end the relationship that ought to be ended is a desire to be with somebody else without deceiving the person you are currently with, without hooking up, without having sex, 
that isn't allowed you with somebody else. To, you need to officially end the relationship with the person you're with before you go and fuck somebody else. But you can't face up to ending that relationship until there is somebody else. It's not the best way. It's not the most ethical or honest way. But it is a really, really common way. The well-beaten path. And you can trot it with a relatively clean conscience. Hi, I'm a 37-year-old uh, woman in Southern California. Um, I, Dan, I love you, and I've thought many times over the years to call with questions about my own issues. Now that I'm actually calling, it's not even my issue. It's my friend Lily's, and it's not even human. It's her cat. So Lily has a cat named Neko, and Neko has developed a humping problem. Um, and it's a pretty, it's, it's a severe humping problem. Um, he humps them, all, Lily and his, her husband. He humps them all night long, and he will hump their clean laundry and mess up clean folded laundry. And he's had house sitters, and he ends up getting locked out of the room because he keeps the house sitters up all night with, their, with his humping. And Lily is so sensitive and has done research into this and talked to the veterinarian and everything. And he, she's been told that Neko just needs more attention. And they do that. They shower him with attention and try to make him feel loved. And the question for you, which <laughs> I hope you'll find entertaining because I certainly do. She doesn't want to shame him. She doesn't want to make him feel bad for his humping, but she also wants him to stop his humping. So I guess we're wondering if you have, you have any advice for cat humping issues or maybe you know some cat humping deterrers or cat experts. I don't know. Joining me by phone to help field this one, which is so far outside of my areas of expertise, Dr. Sherry Trusheim, veterinarian and owner of Urban Animal Veterinary Clinic here in Seattle. Hey, Dr. Trusheim, how are you? Hello, I'm well, thanks. Quick question. Can you sex shame a cat? Is that a thing? I don't know if cats feel shame per se, but they absolutely, it's not common, but they absolutely can masturbate. And what's the best course of action if your cat is masturbating constantly? If your cat is the equivalent of a 14-year-old boy with an internet connection and mom and dad (laughs) out of town for the weekend, what do you do? I think there are definite, uh, definitely different uh, styles of how you might manage that. But, um, you know, some people might take a more aggressive route and use, like, a loud noise or, you know, like an air horn or something to, like, just, like, scare the cat to make them stop. Others might advocate for... Wait, wait, wait. You know, giving them- wait, wait, wait. Wouldn't the neighbors <laughs> get annoyed by the air horn approach <laughs> to training on, your cat? Depends on how, how often he's doing it. He's I doing it constantly. You would have to, like, <laughs> get a crate of air horns and set them by the so bed. All- all joking aside, like there is, there there can actually be some medical causes for doing it. Not likely, but this is going to sound crazy. But if if he has barbs on his penis, that could mean that he had a testicle left inside his abdominal cavity that didn't descend, which could contribute to the behavior. Mm-hmm. It's a stretch, but it's worth looking into. So I think a consultation with a veterinarian is not a bad idea. But You're talking like a spare third testicle that they didn't get when they needed it. Like a retained, it. yeah, retained testicle, or maybe they only removed one and they didn't go looking for the other. Yeah, we, don't, we don't even know if this cat has been neutered. Would the first approach be to make sure the cat has been neutered? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yep. That's yeah. First and foremost, and doing that would certainly help. There's not too many folks that can live with live with an intact male cat, though. So I'm going to guess that he is, or they assume that he is. So the other thing would be if he has any foreplay. You know, if there's anything leading up that they're like, oh, he's about to do it, then sort of doing something different, like get a favorite toy, give him some treats, give him something else to do besides mm-hmm. masturbate on them. What about the water bottle technique? I, you know, I personally am scared to say it, depending on who listens to your show, but I'm sort of an advocate of it. But a lot of folks see that as a negative reinforcement and they don't, you know, they want to do everything positive. So give him something else to do, redirect his attention. If he was my cat, I would think about the water bottle because I would just want it to stop. Worked with my husband. Yeah. <laughs> see? See? And so, and a cat might be smarter than the average husband. But I had to fill the water bottle with tequila. That was our trick. That's what worked for us. (laughs) See, so that might be positive reinforcement. And and backing way up, (laughs) and we should have probably clarified this at the front, this cat is humping all the time. This isn't a female cat going into heat, which is a once in a great while occurrence. This is a male cat that needs to bust a load all the time. Yeah, all the time. Yes. Not normal, not common. Um, but not, it's not impossible for cats to want to masturbate, even neutered male cats. It just, you know, it's natural and feels good, I suppose. But there's a limit to how much of that you should put. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I would not worry about shaming my cat. I'm not sure cats feel shame. I would be more focused on getting the behavior stopped. And cats don't have access to Tumblr where they can complain about how they were sectioned by their owners. So it's not like there's going to be any blowback that these people get from a judgy online community of shitbags who have nothing better to do than badger other people about the choices they made and what they put in the water bottle that they trained their husband with. Agreed. So I think it's a safe bet to do as needed. Dr. Sherry Trusheim, veterinarian and owner of Urban Animal here in Seattle. Thank you so much for taking this one with me. My pleasure. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescues. I'm 30-year-old uh, straight female, and I have a question regarding a friend of mine. I've known this guy since college. We went to uh, art school together. Um, he defines himself as straight, but this guy uh, tends to carry like all the gay rhythms. Um, he's very flamboyant. He's not interested in women. Um, his relationships are usually very short, and he said he never had sex because he's uh, saving himself till marriage. Also, it's worth mentioning that he's religious and his parents are missionaries. Um, and I know this is not my business and it's his life, his sexuality, but uh, this is um, the problem. Uh, right now, he's, he became like a well-known artist. He posts his art on social media constantly and he has over uh, like uh, about 100,000 followers actually. Um, and uh, his art tends to often be a bit uh, homoerotic. It's not too much, but uh, he kind of obsessed with drawing like butts and it's kind of became his thing. And a lot of people comment on it that it's like it, it's a bit gay and he denies it. Uh, he says it just finds it funny. It's like it's not, it has nothing to do with sexuality. Uh, amongst our group of fellow artists, everyone uh, like now rolls their eyes and dismisses it as uh, he's just closeted. I feel like as uh, his friends, we should talk to him about maybe coming out or at least let him know that we love him and support him if you ever decide to do it. Uh, Dan, have you heard of the social toupee uh, concept? It's when someone is trying so hard to hide a trait about themselves, but everyone else can see it. 
should we let him know that this toupee looks very silly in front of his massive amount of followers or just keep um, our mouth shut and let him do his thing? On the one hand, I want to tell you, it's really none of your business if this guy wants to spend the rest of his life in a transparent closet where everybody can see him under his social toupee. And yet, on the other hand, the closet is a miserable place to be, and I would hate to see someone abandoned there, particularly when there were friends and support waiting for him just outside the closet that he doesn't have the courage to open the door and walk out of. You know, being very religious and being gay and having parents who are missionaries and being gay is hard, and some people really try to suppress it. And then everybody can see it, just like you say. Everybody can see it. The more you try to hide that one thing, the more everyone can see it. The more you suppress your sexual desires, the more you attempt to suppress your true sexual orientation, the more it leaks out uh, in sometimes comical ways. Like I'm going to – you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a gay and I am a religious, but I am an artist and I'm going to specialize in drawing men's butts. Weird. Why would you land on that as your – Muse, I wonder. You know, it does get comic at times and it can seem ridiculous. It's a difficult position to be in. It depends on how close you are to him. It depends on what kinds of late night, midnight of the soul conversations you've had with him over the years. If you've really bared your soul to him, if he's helped you out of tough spots, if you've shared your pain with him and he's shared his pain with you but never fully gone there – you could push all the chits into the middle of the table and risk it and gamble and just say to him, look, I think you're gay and I think you're unhappy and I want you to be happy and everybody I know who's gay and happy is gay and out and happy. There's no gay and closeted and happy. There's only gay and paranoid and closeted and miserable. The closet comes bundled with paranoia and misery and ridiculous shit like the social toupee that you talk about. Ridiculous shit like I'm going to be an artist. I'm inspired by the male ass. There's no correlation here to anything. It's just, you know, butts. So, yeah, you could say to him what you're really thinking. You might not want to say everybody thinks this because that could cause him to double down on the closet, the humiliation of that. You don't want him to nail the closet door shut with another case of nails and a nail gun because he's so freaked out that people are perceiving him to be gay when he's working so hard to deny it. So don't go in with everybody thinks, everybody can tell. But go in with, you know, if you are, and I've always thought you might be, and all signs point toward, I love you, come out, be happy, you'd have friends and support, and your parents will get the fuck over it. And if they don't get the fuck over it, one day they will be dead. And there's a God out there who loves and accepts you. Go read Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian or get him a copy of Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian because he can have his beliefs. He can hold on to his imaginary sky friends and get some ass too, male ass. Get some of that hot, sweaty muse on his face as opposed to on his canvases. Hey, Dan, this is a mid-20s cis male. Uh, I'm straight in the upper Midwest. Uh, I got a question about some infidelity stuff, but it's not the usual thing. Um, I met a girl on OkCupid, um, and it mentioned in her profile that she was seeing someone and that she was, in fact, cheating. And I didn't realize this as soon as I had messaged her, um, but shortly into the conversation, she mentioned that she was married and, yes, she was indeed cheating. Um, she was looking for casual sex slash friends with benefits, and I was kind of, too. So the next day we met up when I had some free time and we had sex. 
I'm wondering if like I don't feel particularly bad about it. I'm not going to see her again, even though she wants to, because I'm not entirely comfortable with her situation. But am I the bad guy here? Is it? I know people have had sex with girls and then realize that they were the other man later and felt bad. Um, but I knew beforehand and I still did it. I don't feel bad, but I'm wondering if I should. So as I pointed out on the show eight zillion times, cheating is sometimes not the wrong thing to do, that cheating sometimes is the least worst option, that there are instances where cheating saves a marriage that maybe ought to be saved. So it's hard for me to give a ruling here without knowing why she was cheating on her husband with you, because that would determine whether you were part of a heroic save of a marriage that ought to be saved and cheating is the only way to save it. Or if you were a selfish cad thinking only with your dick and cuckolding some guy who's not turned on by the thought of being cuckolded. So which is it? Did she tell mm-hmm. you why she's cheating? Um, she, I didn't outright ask because I don't know if it was much of my business, uh, but I did kind of probe wait, a little wait. bit. It's and totally I, your business because she's wanting to cheat with you and she told you that in advance. That makes it your business. So you did ask. Correct. Uh, so I did ask in a way and she, I, I indirectly asked, uh, does your husband not want to fuck you? And she said, no, and I don't particularly want to fuck him either. Um, and that's kind of as far as I went with that. Did you get a sense of how long they'd been together? I think she said something like uh, two years and they've been married for a year. Oh my God, that's so tragic. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to give my blessing here. Because, really? you know, I don't think this is the case where, you know, two people been together for 15 years and they have kids and there's a lot of stresses and the desire is gone, but they need to keep that partnership going because it's in the best interest of their family and you know they're actually they do actually like each other and they just need this outside sexual attention and affirmation in the absence of finding that at home to stay together and that's like a cut and dried case where cheating is probably permissible but in this case that cheating is the c4 explosive that's going to implode a marriage that needs to be imploded i wasn't the only one either i also found out okay well if two years in she's serial cheating on him and he's probably serial cheating on her if they're not above board with each other about that, and I doubt that they are two years in, a year into the marriage, that they're just each of them pounding their hands down on the self-destruct button. And this sounds like a marriage that needs to be destructed, in my opinion. How about yours? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've been with a hot wife before uh, where <laughs> he knew I, he knew, and it was a turn on for him. And uh, I was all above board. I met him before. And it was great. Um, and I guess this was just way different which is why i don't want to do it this is just you walked up on somebody who was slamming her hand down on the self-destruct button and you pulled your dick out and slammed your dick down on it too yes (laughs) yeah so So, i guess like help (laughs) i guess so i mean there's just a way to rationalize this that gets you off the cad hook yeah like i said i don't really i never i didn't really feel bad about it but but as a general rule right she did but as a general rule like if somebody stole a car and they ask you to park it for them, yeah, you didn't steal the car, but probably not necessarily an unshitty thing to do, right? You yeah. ate it in a bed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not absolved of, yeah, I'm not absolved of. But in, but in this particular circumstance, which with the limited details you have about what's going on in their marriage, if I were you, I would feel bad-ish, but not too bad. Yeah, I'm not going to beat myself up over it, but I won't do it again, I don't think. 
stick to hot wives in the future. <laughs> Will do. Good luck. All right. Thanks, Dan. Hi. I'm just calling to ask, what do you do when you have a friend whom you had feelings for and you express those feelings to them and they, you know, they basically, you know, she basically told me that she couldn't really feel the, you know, had, had the same feelings for her, uh, for me and that she was also serving in a long-term, really long-distance relationship with this guy. So it wouldn't really work out. And I had sort of gone into it without expectations. I was like, all right, and I just wanted to get off my chest and that was good. But then like immediately afterwards, she starts acting in a very touchy-feely kind of way and asking me questions about like my feelings on monogamy and like asking me, you know, about previous, you know, romantic partners and things like that. And essentially sort of uh, stoking these intense feelings that I had put aside and had expected to put aside, but then she's still ostensibly unavailable, but then is kind of stoking the flame a bit. I don't know what to do about that. Dude, she's not unavailable. She's in a long distance and what sounds like non-monogamous relationship, but she's not owning up to it because she fears being judged or shamed by you, which is a thing that people who are not monogamous often encounter. You expressed a sexual interest in her. She told you she's involved with somebody else. It's a long-distance relationship. Sounds like it's a primary relationship, perhaps. And the fact that she pivoted from I can't, implying that she couldn't date you because she's with someone else, to sussing you out on your feelings about monogamy and your relationship history is a pretty good sign that she is open to being with you in some limited capacity. When you hit on somebody and they say, I have a boyfriend, and then they turn around and start saying, how do you feel about monogamy? What are they trying to tell you? Obviously, they're trying to tell you that the boyfriend isn't necessarily a disqualifying impediment to you getting in their pants too. So she's tiptoeing around the issue. Time for you to call the question. But when you see her next and she is being touchy-feely and she asks you leading questions about monogamy, you just look at her and say, I'm getting the impression that you're flirting with me, even though you led me to believe that nothing was possible. Are you in an open relationship with your boyfriend? Because if you are, fill in the blank. Depends on what you want and what you're willing to do or settle for, caller. Fill in the blank. Because I'm not interested in being with someone who has a boyfriend because I'm not interested in a non-monogamous relationship because I would be totally up for that. I would be totally game for that. If you need some dick here more readily available to you, I am happy to be that dick. Fill in the blank with whatever it is you feel about this situation in this circumstance. Hey, Dan. This is a 25-year-old uh, straight female, and I'm in Michigan with my boyfriend. And we were having a discussion about the fact that he never gets me off when we're fucking. But I told him he does get me off because either I can come by myself afterwards or um, he uses his fingers on me and he doesn't think that that's the same. He says it's the same as like a high school girl arguing about what a virgin is. So if you could, um, you know, let us know your thoughts on this argument. He's laughing right now because he thinks I'm being dumb. Well, here are my thoughts. As hopefully you know and everyone knows and your boyfriend is aware, 75% of women cannot climax from just vaginal penetration alone, just from PIV intercourse. They need additional stimulation. They need oral sex. They need digital manipulation. They need vibrators in order to climax. I assume you are one of those women. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I don't know, for him, I think he feels like 
it's a satisfaction thing for him that he feels like he was the reason for getting me off. Okay, well, hopefully he regards the fact that you guys just fucked, that you're all aroused, that you're all wet, that your flower is all open and engorged, <laughs> that, that he had some impact there, some role there, that he, that you're primed for your orgasm because of his labors, and that if, if then he uses his fingers, he's getting you off. Right. We were talking about it, and he said, well, you know, if that were the case, then who whoever... I don't know, whoever knows me and like has rubbed one out for me is like that, like he's done it for them, I guess, was his point. And I was like, no, I mean, I guess if you want to pat yourself on the back for every possible configuration of people in your life who have known you and thought about you while doing that, then that's cool for you. So so what what does he want? Does he want you to start pretending you're coming when he's fucking you with his dick? (laughs) So that his dick is a a magic wand and he just waves it over your pussy and you come? What does he want? (laughs) Because there's another another option that we haven't talked about yet, which is incorporating the fingers during intercourse. Masturbating Mm -hmm. as he's fucking you. Mm -hmm. Incorporating a vibrator during intercourse as he's fucking you. You might want to sit him down and the both of you together watch a little gay porn because... A dick is just a great big clit, right? Built uh-huh. during sex differentiation when the genes kick in and the hormones come on and the dick is just built out of the clit. And if you watch a little gay porn, you're going to see gay dudes getting fucked in the ass who are loving it and playing with their giant penis clits the whole time, masturbating as they get fucked. You that makes- can masturbate <laughs> as you get fucked. And if you get deft enough at it and the both of you get into a rhythm with it, you could, you know, achieve the boring holy grail of climaxing to get the completely overrated boring holy grail of climaxing simultaneously if you just time mm-hmm. it right. But it's not going to be like the movies where every time you guys fuck, you're coming at the exact same moment. That's highly unlikely. And you don't see a lot of that. In gay porn, which tends to be a little more honest about climaxing than straight porn because you can't fake the climaxes in gay porn, <laughs> right? There, there's right. going yeah, to yeah. be spooge. So what you often see in gay porn, and really sit your boyfriend down and watch some fags fuck, what you'll see in addition to the guy stroking himself <laughs> while he's getting fucked is the guy who's fucking him, he comes and then the guy stroking himself comes a few minutes later or maybe he comes a few minutes yeah, before. Yeah, exactly what it like for us too mm-hmm. and yeah. that's normal what's not normal is the impression created by romantic comedies by r-rated films by a lot of straight pornography creates this this expectation that if you're doing it right and it's super hot you're going to come together and also for the guy creates this belief that if his dick is all magic and all powerful that he just needs to stick it in her and throw it around for a while and that's enough to get her off and it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in almost all cases, super majority of cases, with most women, the overwhelming majority of women, it does not work that way. And he needs to grieve that and stuff it in a casket and bury it already. Okay. This okay. is the we'll way. We'll put that in fantasy land, yeah. but we have actual homework from Dan Savage. This is not just the way your pussy works and he has to live with that. <laughs> this is the way pussy works. And if he's a fan of pussy, he's going to work with pussy and not guilt you Mm -hmm. about how pussy works, most of it, including yours. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. Well, that's good. Thank you. You're welcome. Enjoy the gay porn. 
Hey, Dan. So, 28-year-old uh, straight male. Just had a quick question. I know you sound like an asshole in asking this, just to preface. Um, but I have this little qualm with my girlfriend that we've been dating for a while. So she doesn't uh, wear makeup anymore. And it seems like she like she just doesn't do her hair. She doesn't really do anything. I guess, and I guess on the one hand, it's nice because she's so comfortable with me and she doesn't feel like she has to do that. But then on the other hand, you know, sometimes I kind of want her to, like, dress up and look nice and stuff, you know, especially when we go out in public. Because, I mean, I do. Yeah, I don't wear makeup, mind you, but I feel like I kind of, like, put myself together and stuff. And I don't know. I know this sounds really vain, and I actually start, I feel like an asshole even asking you, but, you know, it's a legitimate feeling I had, so I just thought I would run it by you. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate from listeners about this. I know, I feel like an asshole, but it's just a feeling I have. I can't help I don't think you're an asshole for wanting your girlfriend to make an effort to look attractive for you. Apparently, presumably, she was making an effort to look attractive for you before you became boyfriend and girlfriend, when you first met, when you were first dating. She tried and made an effort. And the minute she lands you, the minute you're a going concern, the minute she doesn't have to try anymore, she stops trying. And and that just means you're being taken for granted. And that never feels good. And of course, this is gendered. And of course, women are hounded about their looks and makeup is a lot more cumbersome and involves putting on makeup than just slapping a little goo in your hair if you're a guy and using moisturizer. But still, You'd like her to look nice for you, just as you make an effort to look nice for her. I remember getting a letter years ago from a straight couple who, before they married, after watching what happened to so many of their friends and to their parents, they had a pact. They swore a pact as they were getting married at that stage in their relationship where they were really trying to woo each other and making an effort to attract each other. The pact they made when they married was no schlubs. We are not going to turn into schlubs. We're not going to take each other for granted. I am going to try for you as you will try for me, and there will be no schlubbing. And it also gave them license, they said in this letter that ran in my column, to elbow each other in the ribs a little bit when schlubbery was creeping in around the edges. There was, of course, a sexist interpretation that could be applied to or a sexist analysis or a misogynist analysis that could potentially be applied to schlubbery when he elbowed her. Not so much when she elbowed him, but still, you know, because there's so much more cultural baggage heaped up on women about their looks and about making an effort for men and about doing it for men and doing it for men. But if in the context of your relationship, it is mutual and egalitarian and you try for her as she tries for you or you try for her in a way that she no longer tries for you, makes an effort for you, you make an effort for her, I think that you have an absolute right to bring that up. Who knows what her reasons might be? Maybe she was in a relationship in the past where once it reached the stage where your relationship is in now, any effort on her part to look attractive, to worry about her hair, to worry about her makeup, to go out looking awesome was regarded by her boyfriend as flirting with other guys, as attracting attention that she no longer needed to attract because she had him. Who knows what you'll find out if you risk talking to her about it? Maybe you'll find out that she hates wearing makeup and never liked wearing makeup and this was an effort she made just for finding a guy and she's always regarded finding that guy as the end of all that, in which case you guys need to talk that out. 
I suspect, however, it may be the former. That she may have had relationships in the past where the guy she was with regarded any effort made on her part once they were together as a betrayal, as an in, as signaling an interest in other men's sexual attention or erotic attentions or flirty attentions. And she may be inhibited about it. And if you say to her, I want people to want you and get to go home with you, and that's going to be good for our thing, good for our relationship, maybe you'll get a little bit more effort in the hair and makeup department. And when you have this conversation, it will also help if you tell her, if I let it go a little bit and you have something to say, say it to me. I will do my sit-ups. I will get a haircut. When that time comes, I will get my back waxed. Hey, Dan. Young male professional here on the East Coast. So a few days ago, I received my lab results and apparently I tested positive for HSV2, which I was very surprised because my my partner, um, I'm straight. But, you know, pretty much my girlfriend, you know, she hadn't tested positive at all for that, right? So I was actually, you know, as you can imagine, I was very surprised. You know, we're in the process right now of getting all the tests. But, you know, in looking back at her records, apparently she's never been tested for herpes. Now, she ended a relationship with her ex a few years ago. He cheated on her and everything. So I don't know if the disease came then. She was seeing some other guy last year in which... You know, she was seeing him and she was seeing me at the same time. I'm pretty certain she wasn't cheating on me this year. But now it's just a matter of, well, I'm getting a second test and then I'm also looking to get the Western blot test, right? So, of course, one of my many questions here is, you know, is that why is it that, you know, with HSV testing, you know, there seems to be so many. You know, it seems that for a lot of people, they got a numeral value of up to 3.2 and it could be a false positive, which is obviously what I'm hoping for here be the case. But then just this issue that, you know, if I do have it, it was more than likely because she gave it to me because I know I had tested myself before and never had this uh, before. To me, it makes all the sense in the world to break up with her because she ended up giving me this thing. And I just can't phantom seeing myself in the mirror waking up every morning, you know, being with this person that gave me this disease, even though at the end it might not be the most harmful thing in the world health-wise. The fact is, he gave it to me. Joining me by phone from New York to help answer this question, Ella Dawson. She's a sex blogger in her early 20s who's been living with genital HSV-1 for three years. She's written for websites like Women's Health and Femsplain. And her TEDx talk about herpes stigma was released online last week and has been going viral. And it is amazing. You should look it up. Ella Dawson, the name of the video STIs aren't a consequence. They're inevitable. Ella Dawson, TEDx, Connecticut College. Hey, Ella, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I can't tell you how much I loved everything that you had to say in your video about living with herpes, about the stigma and the shame and the needlessness of it. And I I almost feel like just playing the whole video here on the Lovecast, just because it hits so many points that we've covered on the Lovecast. We try constantly to talk people down about their herpes panic and about the herpes stigma. Can you just give listeners who haven't yet seen your video, but who are all on my orders, going to go watch it after listening to the podcast today, give us the uh, the Reader's Digest condensed version? Sure. Well, I do agree that there's a huge amount of needless social stigma surrounding herpes in particular, but all STIs. And when you get diagnosed, as I did three years ago, you tend to feel really awful about yourself because you've received this message for so long that people who have herpes are dishonest and unfaithful and immoral. And it's really soul-crushing and needless. 
And uh, in my talk, I talked about some of the sources of herpes stigma, such as the terrible state of sex education in the U.S. today and the real lack of clarity around testing and just the way that we talk about herpes in pop culture. And I personally am an oversharing millennial, so my <laughs> reaction when I got diagnosed was to just talk about everyone who would listen to me talk about my vagina to try to figure out uh, how I was feeling and to find other people who could give me advice. And I realized very quickly that I know so many people who have herpes and HPV and have had experience with other STIs. And I'd been surrounded by those people with those experiences and been so alone um, because nobody was really talking about it. And I really wanted to talk about um, why we need to change the way we talk about herpes and, and help people who have just been diagnosed realize that this is a conversation you can have and it can be a really positive experience. You engage in the video and I think in your life in what I would call a kind of radical, casual routine disclosure of the fact that you have herpes. Yeah. And one of the things you, you mentioned, which I just think is so true, and I think we've talked about on the podcast in the past with others, is when you tell someone you have herpes, odds are better that you're telling someone who also has herpes, whether they know it or not. But that's how common it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm in my early 20s, so most of the people I'm talking to don't know their herpes status yet, um, either because they've just yet to encounter somebody else or they've yet to get tested for it or they just don't know. But uh, especially with um, friends of my parents and, and, and other family members, like I think it's generational. Like The older you get, the more you realize herpes is everywhere and the less, the less of a big deal it is. And I tend to hear a lot from teenagers who are the most devastated mm -hmm. because they're just so new to this conversation. And why do you think, if it's so common, people are so devastated? Because I, I do think that we there's so much silence associated with herpes and STIs that it's kind of like somebody who's flipped on a light switch and you see the world differently. And as a result, it feels really terrible when you get diagnosed because it's so new and you've never given it real serious thought before. It's never been something you associate with your friends and your family or yourself. It's always been something that's on other people. And it's, it's kind of a crisis of confidence and a real shock. But... Hopefully over time, most of us realize, hey, this is common. This doesn't have to impact my life. But in the beginning, it's very hard to visualize what your life will be like when you get diagnosed. I want to talk, you just don't know. I want to talk quickly about the title of your TED Talk, that uh, it's not a consequence, an STI. It's an inevitability. Because I yes. have said, and I sometimes get slammed for this by people in the sex-positive community, I have said, you know, if you're going to have multiple sexual partners, if you're not going to be abstinent, you're sort of signing up for some particular STIs. You're kind of volunteering, at least for HPV, which is extremely common, probably for herpes. And you can't be uh, in denial about it or a baby about it. And the risk-benefit analysis works out in sex's favor. It's better to have sex and shoulder these risks and live potentially with these STIs than to never have sex. But it is, I've used the word inevitability. It's kind of an inevitability. If you have multiple sexual partners, and you weren't a virgin on your wedding night, and they weren't also a virgin on your wedding night, that you will at some point acquire or be exposed to at least HPV and herpes. And how do you frame inevitability as not in some way punitive? I know what you mean when you say uh, STIs aren't a consequence. It's not some divine punishment because you're sexually active, so this is the consequence that God is, the thunderbolt God is throwing at you. But to frame it as an inevitability... How does that calling it inevitability not also seem kind of punitive or negative? How do you, how do you understand inevitability the way you use it there? Sure. So 
I, I'm constantly told by anonymous trolls on Twitter that if I had just waited until marriage, I wouldn't have herpes. And it's like my own fault that I didn't stay clean. And I, I definitely had a lot of fun in college and I used condoms and I got tested and I, I thought I knew my status and I still got herpes. I feel like I did everything right and it still happened. But even if you do everything wrong, which is super subjective, um, I don't think that an STI should be a reflection of your character and it should not determine the way people treat you. And telling someone that an STI is a punishment just reaffirms the negative stereotypes that keep people from getting diagnosed and keep people from getting treated and keep people from disclosing. And anything that keeps people from getting tested, anything that keeps people from seeking treatment, and anything that keeps people from disclosing winds up fueling STI epidemics, winds up contributing to our high rates of STI. So this stigma that people want to maintain, in part, theoretically, to lower the rates of STIs by shaming and uh, stigmatizing people with STIs actually increases rates of STIs. The shame and the stigma makes the problem worse, not better. Absolutely. And I hear from some really concerned parents who are new to my message. It's like, I like the stigma. It keeps my parent or keeps my children from making mistakes because they live in fear of getting STIs. And my response would be, no, it keeps them from getting treated and it keeps them from asking you questions. And it keeps them from telling their partners if they do get diagnosed because they've been raised to expect judgment and disdain as opposed to an understanding partner. So it has really dangerous consequences. All right. Speaking of understanding or misunderstanding partners, the question that we all just listened to, uh, it was a little while ago. So uh, a quick recap. He just found out that he has herpes and he's wondering apparently how angry he should be with his girlfriend and whether he should dump her. It sounds like he's made up his mind to dump her. Sounds like it might be not in her best interests for us to talk him out of dumping her. Did you have any advice for this guy? Yeah, this this was hard for me to listen to because it's the sort of voicemail I could imagine one of my exes leaving when they found out that I got diagnosed. Um, I think that when we get diagnosed, we have this, we deal with that sudden uh, shame and hurt and confusion in different ways. And some people feel really disgusted with themselves. But if you're in a relationship and you suspect that your partner has given you this STI, a lot of people will then push that stigma and that shame and that horrible feeling onto their partner and say, you know, I, I've done everything right. I am a great partner. I'm a good person. I knew my status, but they did this to me. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of making yourself feel better in the long term. But it's a really terrible thing to do to your partner who more than likely either didn't know their status or, um, or didn't mean to, regardless, didn't mean to, to hurt you or transmit to you. It's not a malicious act. It's usually just an accident, especially if they've been asymptomatic. And we don't even know for sure that they did, that she did give him an STI. So Okay, no, wait, wait. Let's unpack that. We don't know for sure that he got it from her because he could have had it before he even met her and was asymptomatic, yeah. and this is his first or second outbreak. Some people have their initial outbreak and don't even notice it because it's so minor, and then later in life they have their second outbreak because maybe their immune system is depressed for some other reason, and their second outbreak is more severe, and then they look at the person they're with going, you did this to me, when you've had herpes all along, and you can't rule that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if he could have, like, he, he expressed his own confusion with blood tests, which continued to baffle me as well, but it's possible that he had had this in his system for a long time and it hadn't popped up in earlier tests, or he might not have been tested for herpes himself. So there was just a lot of blame and, and fear. And I've seen people go through that, going through that 
wind up being very emotionally abusive and manipulative to their partners without necessarily intending to and thinking that they're justified. Mm-hmm. But nobody really deserves to be treated that way. And especially in this instance where an STI is not an emo- it's not a malicious act. It's not something anybody sets out to get or to transmit. And that that potential for it being a trump card of like, well, I stayed with you as well. I stayed with you and you gave me an STI. That's also really dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I, I like, I found myself getting upset listening to this voicemail because I, I remember being in that relationship myself and STIs tend to be a catalyst as well. When you're in a relationship that might have some flaws or be on a shaky foundation, getting an STI diagnosis can exacerbate some of those issues and bring them to the surface really quickly. So if you do have underlying trust issues with your partner or somebody has cheated in the past or they're just not a very good person, sometimes it can bring up those issues in a really dramatic way. I happened to be dating a misogynist prick when I got diagnosed, but we were still in the honeymoon phase. And I realized very quickly, sooner than I would have otherwise, that he was not the person for me because I was diagnosed in that relationship. Quickly, and let's be prescriptive, If our advice for him, dumper, not dumper? I'd say break up with her for her sake (laughs) (laughs) before she dumps you. I was then going to ask you, let's pretend that the girlfriend is listening, dump him or not dump him. Dump him. Like the way I just, that's not a way to talk about your partner. And I just, my heart kind of broke for her because I'm sure she's not being treated very well right now. He's, he's really upset. And that's, that's hard. I, I'm sure she would feel terrible if, if she did give him herpes, if that's the way the story ends. That's heartbreaking for a partner to know that they put their partner at risk without knowing. And that's, that's such a devastating experience for some people. And to have your partner then say, yeah, you did this to me, that can really hurt someone and, and damage a relationship beyond repair. And to say you did this to me and what is the this we're talking about? A really common, easily transmissible, sexually transmitted infection that most people who have it are not aware that they have it. And that most people who do get it and have an outbreak have one outbreak and never have an outbreak again, particularly with the drugs we have now that suppress outbreaks. So the this that happened to the caller is not a big fucking deal in the long run not at all. and in the final accounting. His reaction to it is making it a relationship extinction level event because of the stigma, because of the shame, because of his desire to place blame. And it's going to end a relationship that if he could get past all of those things, all those issues, that anger and the stigma and the shame and the the need to assign blame for this, a relationship that might otherwise survive if they can let go, if he can let go of his anger, anger that could be misplaced again, caller, because you could have already had herpes long before you met this girl. Hey, Dan, 27-year-old, single, straight female, living in the Midwest. A couple months ago, I found out that I had genital herpes, even though I had never had any signs or symptoms. Shitty news. And it's made the idea of dating terrifying, to say the least. My question is about dating websites. Um, Recently, I came across websites for people who have STIs and STDs. And I was curious to know what your thoughts on those types of websites are and what you think about them, if 
you should only use those types of websites if you have an STD or if it's if you use other websites like match.com or something and you have an STD, like, is that like leading people on? I don't know. So does someone who knows that they have herpes, are, are they required to only date on dating websites for people with STIs? Are they banned from Tinder and OkCupid? Absolutely not. I, I personally love Tinder. I think it's hilarious. And that has not changed since I got diagnosed. I think that there's a lot of us have this impulse when we get diagnosed of not knowing how to date again. We can't really imagine telling someone we have herpes. It seems like a really scary conversation. And there is this temptation to self-segregate, to say, okay, I'm only going to date other people with herpes. That'll make my life so much easier. But the thing is, you're really doing yourself a disservice and the rest of the people in the world because you have so much to bring to any relationship. And there is no need to limit yourself to other people who have the same STI. And I, I personally am really uncomfortable with the concept of STI dating sites because, hey, if, if, if you hate the risk of being rejected and it makes you feel better to only date other people with herpes, that's fine. You can make that decision. But if you're just really scared and ashamed, using those sites can reinforce that, that shame and confusion that you're feeling as opposed to helping you break out of that experience. And I personally do not self-segregate at all. I date whoever I want. Mm-hmm. Um, I just am very, very upfront about the fact that I have herpes. And I don't think of it as baggage that I'm bringing to a relationship. It's just part of my life and part of being with me. It's like the fact that I'm cripplingly addicted to Diet Coke. Like <laughs> It's just a thing oh that I God. bring to the relationship. That shit will kill you. You got to stop drinking Diet Coke. <laughs> it is far more dangerous, I know. And that is usually what I argue about in relationships. Is It's been my Diet Coke addiction. It's not the fact that I have herpes. Okay, so you engage in radical, casual, immediate disclosure. Do you think, and there's mm-hmm. been people writing about this on both sides, and I'm actually not sure where I come down on this. Do you think people have a right not to disclose the fact that they have herpes, considering the stigma, the judgment, the shame, the irrational horseshit about it. And the fact that when you do disclose that you have herpes, you're probably disclosing that you have herpes to somebody who also has herpes and just doesn't know it. Is it a legit mm-hmm. dating strategy just to not disclose? Is that okay? I, this is such a tough question. I am really strongly on the side of disclosing. Disclosing. I do think that people have a right to make the right decisions for their bodies and their sexual health. And while herpes is no big deal for almost all of us, If you have a suppressed immune system, if you have other conditions, like it is something that you should know and that you should think about. Mm -hmm. So I I strongly recommend disclosing. And I also think that it's very hard to have a healthy relationship if you are not super honest with your partner about anything that could impact them. What about to a casual sex partner? What about to somebody you're never going to see again, a one-nighter? I mean, I, I would still disclose and I would still talk about it. I know that there are people who don't. Um, that makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. just because of my own moral code. Like when I, when I got diagnosed, it, it was never really thinkable to me to not then tell my partners when I was first diagnosed. Mm-hmm. It, it just never occurred to me. So I, I know where I stand on this. I do think that people need to make the decisions that make sense for them. I certainly think that if you've been in an abusive relationship and you found out that your partner gave you an STI, should you tell them you should you should do whatever will keep you safe. Like there are some instances where I'm a bit more forgiving of people who don't disclose, but I I personally think that it's the right thing to do. 
Ella Dawson, check out her TEDx talk. STIs aren't a consequence. They're inevitable. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today and talking with us. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Dan. Uh, I am a 23-year-old straight man, and I have a question about long-term relationships, breakups, and closure because uh, I'm finding myself in a difficult position here. Um, now, I know this kind of might have a tendency to be a long story, and I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible and just give you the, the, the facts and the details. So basically, I um, was started dating this girl online, and I know that sounds really bad, but uh, she and I had been friends since we were pretty young. Um, we met on a chat room and kind of just grew up, you know, chatting with each other and being friends. And eventually, in our early 20s, we wanted to try dating each other uh, long distance and see how it went. And it went great. And then she eventually, you know, came and we met in person. And uh, she lived with me for a couple months and, and things seemed to be really great. And it was just a very loving and caring relationship and things like that. And then uh, she enlisted into the military. And after uh, her basic training, um, things started to get a little weird. And uh, I noticed that she's kind of increasingly became a little more distant. And after basic, she went to uh, uh, tech school, which is basically military college, and um, started spending a lot of time with this with this guy who overtly made it obvious that he was interested in her. And I was uncomfortable with it, but, you know, I was trying to be cool and just, you know, be secure in the relationship and things like that. But then uh, afterwards, though, it continued to progress to a point where she got drunk and made out with him. And uh, she told me and was honest about it. And I... That was the point where I put my foot down and was like, hey, you know, this is not cool. Like, this is interfering with our relationship. And so I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't spend any more time with him. And at first I was fine. Um, that was kind of the point where things really started to degrade. Our relationship just kind of went south after that because she continued uh, afterwards to spend time with him again. And I could tell because she wasn't. She kept defending him and kind of telling him, like, just defending his actions and her right to hang out with somebody that she cheated on me with. Um, so that continued, and eventually we broke up because of it. And we were on and off for a little while. And uh, I guess the, the whole point of my, my call here today is that, you know, it's been a few months now, and I'm still kind of frustrated because I went above and beyond for this relationship and tried to be um, as supportive and caring as possible. And I never cheated. I never yelled or got angry or did anything malicious or mean, but, but I felt like I wasn't respected at the end of it. And I mean, it's good because it showed the kind of person that she turned out to be, but uh, I guess I just want some, some, some questions on, on closure and, and maybe how to deal with this and how to deal with, you know, kind of being mistreated in a relationship uh, and being manipulated and how to successfully move on from that. So I don't have it affect you know, future relationships with other people. Before I lower the boom, I don't want you to get the impression that I think you did anything wrong or played this wrong by not being mean, by not being aggressive, by not being angry, by being forgiving and accommodating. I don't want you to regard those things as the fatal errors here and you would have this woman only if you had attempted or taken a different approach. That's absolutely the right approach to take in this relationship even if it didn't work out and all future relationships including the one that hopefully comes along one day and does work out. All right, here we go. You got dumped. It was a long-distance relationship. She obviously didn't regard it as necessarily exclusive. She is in the military. She was seeing other people. Perhaps she let you make assumptions that weren't true. Perhaps she wasn't as forthcoming or straight with you as she should have been. But, dude, she was dating you. She dated this other guy. 
She went back and forth, ping-ponged a little bit, and then picked him. You're young. She's young. That's dating. That's how messy it gets at times. So you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe she did a little wrong, but not a lot wrong. And in the end, you didn't get the girl, even though, quote-unquote, you did everything right. You don't get the girl in the end, even if you do do everything right. You're not entitled to the girl in the end just by behaving with simple human decency and courtesy and being respectful. It doesn't entitle you to anything. You still might not get the girl. But we shouldn't use the girl like that because that implies that there's just one girl out there to get. The girl in the world. You didn't get the only girl. Like she's the hope fucking diamond. There are other girls in the world that you can get. Using the same interpersonal human skills that you used with this girl. Be respectful, be kind, be forgiving, be patient, be understanding, be assertive about your needs. Make sure they're being met. Demand the same consideration that you are giving. And then hopefully with one of the other girls on the planet, one of the many billions of hope diamonds rattling around out there, you will find somebody where it all clicks into place and works out because you're a good guy. And maybe she was a good person, but just kind of scattered, not sure what she wanted and torn between two lovers, feeling like a fool, like the old song goes. She chose someone else. You got dumped. Happens to everyone. Happens to people a lot, particularly at your stage of life. 23 years old, this is going to happen again. And you can sit on your hands wondering what you did wrong when in fact you may have done everything right it just didn't work out grieving what might have been or what should have been and sitting there feeling entitled because you did everything right you're not entitled not entitled to anything or you can just say hey i got dumped that happens happens to everybody happens a lot i'm going to go for a bike ride i'm gonna eat some ice cream i'm gonna go to the gym i'm gonna binge watch lady dynamite on netflix it's amazing and then i'll get over it and i'll meet somebody else in good time Hi, Dan Savage. My question today is, should I let my boyfriend wax my pussy? He wants to do it, not because he's, like, into it sexually, I think. I think maybe he's a little bit into it sexually. But mostly just because, like, it costs 50 to $70 to do it at a salon. And they don't seem to do, like, the most amazing job all the time. And I think that he just thinks he could do a better job. And I do make him pay for it. That's probably why he wants to do it himself. Um, and I just, I'm worried about letting him do it only because, like, would it, you think it would, like, kill the mystery of, I, I don't know. I, like, wouldn't let someone uh, watch me put on makeup necessarily every day. I don't know. I just feel like it might uh, kill the romance or something. Um, so what do you think of this? Should should I let my boyfriend wax my pussy? I have these friends, and one was saying to me the other night, at a dinner party that he gets down on his hands and knees between his boyfriend's spread open ass on the bathroom floor every once in a while and, and shaves his hole for him, shaves his boyfriend's hole. They've been together seven or eight years and doesn't appear to have killed the romance. The boyfriend pressing the other boyfriend into that grooming routine, still interested in that ass. So who knows, maybe being that up close, all up in your snatch with a home waxing kit, will bring you two closer together. Maybe he'll have a better appreciation for your anatomy if he's helping to sustain and maintain it in the condition that he prefers to receive it in. However, seems to me that 
you might just want to, instead of letting the boyfriend do this to save his boyfriend dollars, you might want to find a new salon where they're better at it than the salon that you're going to now. If one of the reasons you guys are contemplating doing this is the salon you go to, they don't do it particularly well. Sorry, waxing is something that you have a right to demand wellness. It being done particularly damn well when you pay that kind of money to undergo that kind of torment. So change up salons if you're uncomfortable with the thought of your boyfriend doing this for you, particularly if you worry that he's only doing it for you to save the money. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis straight 18-year-old guy calling from Scotland, and I've been with my girlfriend for about six months, and we haven't had sex yet. This is because I have almost crippling performance anxiety. I struggle to get hard even when making out with her and dry humping. When I do, the moment we take our clothes off, I completely deflate. I've told her about this, and she's completely supportive, but that in itself doesn't seem to have helped much. I have no problems getting hard alone. I don't think it's a physical issue, only when around others. I'm wondering if you have any advice on how we can cure this issue so we can have some great fun, safe sex. Thanks. Maybe those moments when you're losing your erection, you could just talk to it. Because just the sound of your voice gave me a boner. What a sexy fucking rumbly, deep voice accent you got going there. Just talk to your dick. Or if that doesn't work, take your dick out of the equation. Take the pressure off your dick. You've been with your girlfriend for six months. You have this performance anxiety. You have these issues around sustaining an erection. That doesn't mean you can't still have great and fun sex with your girlfriend. All you got to do is say, we're going to do mutual masturbation. We're going to roll around. I'm going to eat your pussy. I'm going to use my hands to get you off. We're going to have vibrators. We're going to explore and be together and be intimate without necessarily at all hinging on whether or not I can sustain an erection. Because right now I'm a little nervous. And right now the pressure on me to produce the boner is chasing the boner away. In the moment when I'm alone, I can get a boner. I can masturbate just fine because there's no pressure. There's nobody else in the room looking at your dick and tapping their foot. That's how you feel. I'm not saying that that's what your girlfriend is doing. But on some level, that's how you feel. Like, there she is. Oh, my God. Where's my dick? Where's my dick? Ah. And there's nothing sexy about the ah, where's my dick feeling. You kind of have to forget about your dick to get that erection. You can't be cripplingly self-conscious about whether or not your dick's going to get hard because then your dick definitely isn't going to get hard. And I promise you that if you can be having sex on the regular with your girlfriend where it doesn't matter if your dick is hard or not because you're still going to have the sex. You're still going to roll around. Your dick will get hard at times and then you can bring it into the game. You can, she can blow you. She can masturbate you. You can masturbate yourself. You can have some intercourse and if your dick goes away, don't bust out that little tiny coffin and throw your dick in it and have a funeral. Just keep going. Do the other stuff that you also enjoy and just give yourself permission to let your dick have its fits and starts for now until you catch a groove, until your confidence kicks in. Dicks are Tinkerbell. There's got to be someone in the room who believes, right? And right now you don't believe in your dick. And so like Tinkerbell, your dick is dying in the moment. The light is going out. And you need to have some experiences that help you believe, not just in your dick, but in you and in your ability to be intimate and be sexual and to get her off whether your dick shows up at that particular moment or not. And you can get her off whether or not your dick shows up at that particular moment. And then after you've tried this or in addition or simultaneously while you're trying this, there is nothing like a blindfold. 
right? You ask your girlfriend, moderate mild kink to wear a blindfold while you go down on her, while you roll around, while you do whatever, because that might help you think she's not looking to see if I'm hard or not. And then if you're hard, you can bring your dick into it. If you're not hard, it's not the first thing that you're worried that she's noticing or thinking about. You also get a, you also have to ask her to sign off and really believe that boner or not boner, you're into her. And with her help, you're going to get to a place where you have the confidence to bring the boner, where you, where you believe in your tinker dick, right? But you're not going to get there if you guys aren't having sex and aren't being intimate, aren't being sexual because your dick is not hard. That just puts so much pressure on you and your dick that your dick is never going to get out from under that. Take all the pressure off. You are going to have sex tonight whether you get hard or not. And then do it. Go through with it. Do it, do it, do it. Hey, Dan, Anton, the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. This is a response to the caller from episode 501 who uh, liked to fantasize about her brother. There's some effect that in psychology whereby people tend to be turned off by their siblings, and most people feel it, but some people don't. And uh, I don't either. I, I find it quite sexy to fantasize about my sister. Like you said, I don't want to fuck her. I don't want to touch her in any way at all. It's just fun to think about her. I don't know why. I just My brain didn't get the thing that turns you off your siblings seems harmless to me hi dan um i'm calling about a woman who's speaking on episode 501 and she's the one who has, whose uh, husband has a very high sex drive and she refers to herself as having a low sex drive and considering everything she was doing in the compromising i would argue that she doesn't yet have a true sense of what her sex drive is. I believe they sounds like they've been together since teenagers. So I hope she thinks about uh, what that means, think, thinking she has a low sex drive if she's only comparing it to her husband. This message is for the young lady whose husband of 14 years is shitting and pissing and expecting sex every other day. I just wanted to say that I couldn't agree with Dan more. Not only is it asking a lot of you, but I think in a situation, less is more, because I can't imagine that the quality of the sex that he is receiving from you is quite the same as it would be if, let's say, you were doing it once a week. I'm sure that I would enjoy it more, um, and if my husband were asking me to have sex every other day, I can't imagine that the quality of it would be fantastic. So I definitely think you should take his advice on this and kind of put a firm foot right up his ass and tell him, look, this, this needs to stop. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Ella Dawson on Twitter at Bros and Pros. And a big thank you to Dr. Sherry Trusheim from Urban Animal. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>